We'll be in Mark chapter 8 today, and uh, we're going to be continuing our series that I've entitled Refocus, and I've said each week our desire in this is to get a clearer picture of Jesus from the gospel accounts. Uh, so many different things in our lives and our world kind of uh, muddies up the picture we have of Jesus, our understanding of Jesus, uh, and causes us to have the wrong idea and the wrong focus on who he is. And so anyway, our desire is just to see him clearly by what he taught, what he did while he was on this earth for those uh, uh, 33 and a half years or so. And uh, last week, what we looked at, uh, we were challenged to leave the leaven out of our loaf. Okay, kind of thought that was an interesting way to put it, right? Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he told them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. And the reason for that, the, the disciples originally were a little bit confused, and they thought, okay, he's talking about leaven. This is because we didn't bring any bread. He's mad at us because we didn't bring bread. Right after Jesus had fed some 4,000 with seven loaves and a couple fishes, right? And Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. You continue thinking about things from an earthly perspective. You continue thinking about them in a fleshly way. The things I'm talking about are spiritual and so they realized, oh, he is meaning the leaven, the doctrine of their uh, of these guys. Because these doctrines, these teachings, if you will, were things that would uh, come into their lives without them realizing it. And before they knew it, it would corrupt, it would uh, compromise everything that they believed and everything they taught. And so what Jesus was telling his disciples and what he was telling us as well is that we have to be on guard, we have to be watching out, because we are, as human beings, I guess, we are prone to fall into certain ditches, okay? We are prone to uh, adopt certain teachings that are against Scripture. And so what we saw in that, the Pharisees were the legalists. They were the ones who believed everything was about keeping the rules, keeping the laws, and all of these things. It was all about outward appearances, and they became very judgmental of one another. They became very comparative. They became very um, condemning of other folks because it was all about pretense. It was all about uh, all about appearances. And he says, don't fall into that. Don't allow that little bit of Phariseeism to creep into your life. It will take over your entire faith, your entire religion. Uh, then he said, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberals of the bunch. They were the compromisers. And uh, they were willing to set truth aside. They were willing to abandon truth for the sake of acceptance, for the, the sake of seeming relevant to those who were around them. And he said, beware of that. And the last group were the Herodians. The Herodians were the ones who were uh, looking to man instead of to God. They were looking to man to be their savior. They were looking for a king to a politician, a preacher, a movement, or something to be the one who was in control, the one that was in charge to gain them power, to gain them, uh, to gain them peace, really. And so that was the, the three different uh, doctrines that we looked at last week. And if we look in the world around us, we find that all three of those are very present within religion. There are those who are very legalistic. There are those who are very pharisaical. There are those who have compromised and become very liberal. And there are those who are looking to men instead of to God. That's all the way around us 
And we have to be careful because we are susceptible to buying into one of those or all of those in our own lives. We have tendencies. We have a lean into those things. And so Jesus says, beware, take note, be careful that that does not come into your life. And so this week, what we're going to be looking at is Jesus is still with his disciples. They are just north of the Sea of Galilee in a region that is uh, getting further away from uh, Jerusalem and closer to Gentile territory. Jesus is using this time as he's preparing to go to the cross. He's using this time to prepare his disciples for his absence. And that's what he was doing last week. And he's continuing that this week. And he is going to give them an object lesson that I think ties together this entire portion of scripture that we are in today. And uh, I want to look at this lesson that he is uh, seeking to give to his disciples. So Mark chapter number eight, we're going to be down at verse number 22. And I'm just going to read a short passage today, but we're going to cover a little bit more territory. And so Mark 8 and 22, it says, And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring him a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again on his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it into any in the town. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity we have to be in church. Thank you for everyone who's gathered out. We thank you so much for your word that we have to instruct us and to draw our focus, our attention to you, Lord, that we can see you more clearly. We pray, Lord, ask you that you would just meet with us here today. I pray that you give me clarity of uh, thought and clarity of speech, Lord, that I could communicate these things that uh, we have studied, these thoughts that you have placed upon my heart. And I just pray that you would be with each person here, that through this time at church, that they would be strengthened in their faith, that they would be encouraged to continue on and to continue walking with you. And I pray that if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, if there's never been a time that they realized that they were lost and separated from you and they needed to be saved, that today would be the day they would call upon you for salvation. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen. So as we see in this passage, Jesus was, uh, just before this, crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee. He went from one side to the other, back and forth, and he continued having different things that were going on. And finally, he starts setting northward from Galilee. He's going up to uh, toward the, the region of Caesarea Philippi. He's going to go up to uh, a mountain in which he's going to be transfigured later on. So there's a lot of things that's going to be going on here, but there's a lot of time that was spent traveling, okay? There's a lot of time that was spent traveling, going from place to place. That's where Jesus was doing a lot of his discipling and whatnot. But as he was going from the Sea of Galilee up to Caesarea Philippi, uh, he came through this city of Bethsaida. And this was in the region around where uh, Capernaum was nearby too. And this was in the region that Jesus had done much of his ministry. Many of his miracles had been done in this region. And so it was only normal for him going through this region to have people coming to him with needs. I think it'd be kind of tiring to be Jesus with everybody always constantly coming, wanting to be healed, wanting to see a miracle, wanting to see a sign, uh, always either wanting something from him or trying to catch him up in something, right? 
And so as he was going, he met this man who had a need, which that doesn't surprise us. But what does surprise us is how he meets this need. As you read through all of the different accounts of Jesus healing people throughout Scripture, this one is set in contrast to the rest of them. This is the only time that we find in Scripture that Jesus heals someone in steps. This is the only time that he does it in stages. Every other time that we find someone comes to Jesus and Jesus heals them immediately. Right away he heals them, but this time he does it in stages. Uh, People have tried to find different ways and use this to support uh, different doctrines and whatnot. And really, I think they're missing the point. This isn't saying that uh, there is something to come along after salvation, that there is a uh, second blessing or another baptism or something like that that comes along later on. I believe Jesus is using this to uh, communicate a much simpler idea. Okay, And so I want to look at that today. Uh, And... If we look at it here in context, I think it'll give us a lot of insight because I think, as I said before, it kind of ties everything together. If you put this, uh, put yourself in this blind man's shoes, okay? If you would just put yourself in his place for just a moment and think, okay, you've been blind for who knows how long, maybe his entire life, and you hear about Jesus, you've heard of all the miracles that he's done, and you hear that he's coming through your town. Some of your friends come along and they say, okay, we'll help you to get to where Jesus is. You come to Jesus and you are begging for him to heal you. He takes you by the hand, leads you out of the city, and then he spits on your eyes. That's a little bit odd. Anyone like being spit on? No? Me neither. So anyway, he spits on on his eyes and he tells him to look up and he says, do you see anything? And he says, I see men as trees walking. Okay, I'm seeing shadows, I'm seeing shapes, I'm able to make out things. So if you're putting yourself in his position, that would be a major improvement, wouldn't it? From total darkness into at least now you're able to navigate, at least you're able to make your way around. You have been greatly improved by coming to Jesus. But he has always heard about how Jesus healed people completely, about how Jesus has done such great miracles If you were that man, would you be satisfied with halfway? No, you wouldn't be satisfied with halfway. You want a complete healing. You know that Jesus is able to do it entirely. Why would you settle for halfway? And so that brings the question back to us. How many times in our lives do we settle for halfway? How many times in our life does God have greater things for us? Does he have greater things available and we are satisfied with halfway? And I believe this is one of the main points, one of the reasons why he brings us out. in this entire passage that we're seeing here is we're seeing people who are getting stuck halfway. We're seeing people getting stuck halfway. Halfway, And so I want to explore them today. And the first ones that I want to look at is if we just go right before this passage that we read today, we are looking at the disciples. We're looking at this confusion that they had about when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? And they started fighting amongst themselves and uh, murmuring amongst themselves. And they said, this is because we have brought no bread. And Jesus tells them here in verse number 17, Why reason ye because you have no bread? Perceive ye not, neither understand. Have have you your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, 
See ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember? And he recalls whenever he broke the bread amongst the 5,000 and amongst the 4,000 and all the fragments that were taken up and how Jesus had proven time and again that he was sufficient, that he was able, that he could provide, but yet it seems like this knowledge had escaped them. In verse number 21, he says, how is it that ye do not understand? And so we see that the first problem is a partial or a partway knowledge, a partway belief. And I think that there's many people in this world today who knows who Jesus is, they have heard of Jesus, they've heard him preach, they've heard him proclaim, they may have read the Bible, they may even call themselves Christians, they know a lot about Jesus, but they don't actually know Jesus. They have only come part way, they've only come halfway whenever it comes to the things of Christ. Whenever we look at these people in Bethsaida, why is it that Jesus led this man out of the city before he performed the miracle? Why is it that at the end of it, he says, don't go into the town or tell anybody in the town? Well, in Matthew chapter 11, he rebuked this city and he rebuked Capernaum. And he said, if all of the signs and wonders of all the miracles that have been done in you were done in, in Tyre and Sidon, which are Gentile nations and Gentile cities, if they had been done there, they would have repented long ago. If it had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have still been here to this day. He had rebuked them for their unbelief. And so he tells this man, he says, I'm not going to do this in the city. I'm not going to perform it before them because of their unbelief. Brings him out, has mercy on him, heals him outside. They knew who Jesus was, but they didn't know Jesus. They knew of his miracles. They knew of all of the things that he was teaching, but yet they had never actually believed on him. As we go through scripture, we find many people that are like this. We find King Agrippa. Whenever Paul is standing before Agrippa, he shares the gospel. He testifies to him. And Agrippa says to Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul responds, I would that you were uh, both almost and altogether, even as I, except these bonds. He says, I wish that you wouldn't just be almost there. I wish you would be completely there. I wish you wouldn't stop halfway. I wish you would believe. And so you find that with Agrippa. You find that with Judas. This is one that's shocking to me. How could Judas follow Jesus for some three years? How could he see all the miracles and even perform some himself? The disciples perform miracles, right? And if Judas didn't do the same thing as everyone else, wouldn't they be suspicious? It seems to me that he preached. It seems to me that he performed miracles. He was very close to Jesus. He knew of Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus. Jesus never became his savior. Even in our study on Wednesday night, we were talking about uh, King Saul. And whenever King Saul disobeyed God with the uh, Amalekites, he's talking to Samuel and he tells Samuel that it is the Lord thy God. And he says that multiple times, the Lord thy God See, he knew about God, but it was Samuel's God, not his God. He was only part way. He was only halfway. And so for us here today, we have to make sure that we're not content to just know about God, that we're not content to just know about the Bible, that we're not just content to know about Jesus, but we want to actually make him ours, that he is our God. We find that uh, Jesus says, if you believe, you do well, but even the devils believe and tremble. 
So it takes more than just believing that he was a historical figure, believing that he existed, or even believing in the virgin birth and his sacrificial death, even believing in his resurrection. Have you ever came all the way and believed that he did that for you, that his death, burial, and resurrection was sufficient to save your soul, to forgive your sins, and to make heaven your home and your eternal eternity secure? Or is he just merely a good man? Or even maybe he's God, but is he your savior? Do you believe in him or have you believed on him? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Don't settle for part way. Jesus warned that in the day of judgment that there were going to be people that stood before God and said, have we not done many miracles in your name and taught and preached and done all these things in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You only came part way. You wanted my uh, you wanted my name. You wanted to be associated with me. You wanted to do works in my name. You wanted all these things, but you never actually put your faith and trust in me. We don't want to settle for part way when it comes to Christ. We don't want to settle for part way whenever it comes to belief that it is more than just believing Jesus was. It's a matter of believing Jesus as your Savior. Okay. So we don't want to settle for part way. We don't want to settle for almost. Second thing that we're going to look at here. If we look at this uh, blind man, we've already talked about him a little bit. But if we look at this blind man, he was not satisfied with a partial healing. He was not satisfied with a partial healing. Um, Jesus came to make those who were sick whole. He told the Pharisees and the ones that would come to him, he says, I didn't come for those who were whole, but for those who were sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, right? And so he came to make them whole. It was those who were sick that needed the physician. And I've often said that salvation isn't just about heaven and hell. Salvation isn't just about going to heaven. It's not just uh, about eternity. That is a part of it. But we find that in the Bible that it speaks of salvation in past, present, and future tenses. You ever realize that? See, I have been saved from sin's penalty. I don't have to worry about that. That's been taken care of. The moment I put my faith and trust in Christ, that he has paid my sin debt, and that is wiped away. That is clean. But it also talks about uh, salvation in a future sense. I will be saved. What's that talking about? It's not saying that I've got to endure to the end and hope I make it. It's saying that one day I'm going to be delivered from sin's presence. And I look forward to that day that I don't have to be surrounded by sin, that I don't have to be tempted with sin. I don't have to be facing sin all the time, that I can get out of sin's, uh, sin's presence and all of the wicked acts and the things that's going on in this world that so grieves the heart of God. One day he will deliver me from sin's presence. But currently present tense, I am being saved from sin's power. That is what we often refer to as sanctification. That is an ongoing process. God did not save us to leave us the way he found us. God desires not just a partial healing, not just to heal us from sin's penalty, but he wants to deliver us from sin's power. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to take us and sanctify us, to change us, to make us new, to change our presence on this earth. He wants to do something in our lives. We fail to understand the seriousness of sin. 
We think that uh, something so severe, something so horrid that God would leave his home in heaven above, come down and be subjected to all the horrors of the things that Christ went to, being uh, rejected by his own creation, being beaten, being abused, being mocked and ridiculed, and then going to the cross and dying such a horrifying death, he did that because of sin, because of the power of sin, because of the wickedness of sin, because of how horrible sin is. And God saw sin as being something that tragic, that bad, and yet we often see it as being no big deal. We go through life and we think, okay, well, I'm saved. My eternity is secure. And so I can go throughout life and I can play with sin. I can dabble a little bit in it. I'm not really bothered. I see these things as being little, as being trivial. They're not a big deal, but they were such a large offense, such a horrible thing that they required the salvation of our souls by the shedding of his blood. That makes sin a big deal. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, and I I don't think that we realize the severity of sin. And so why would we be willing to continue in our sins? Why would we be satisfied with a partial healing whenever sin is that horrifying, whenever sin has such uh, tragic consequences in our lives? We think that it's not going to affect us, but here's the thing. One of the reasons why God hates sin so much is because of the consequences that sin has on our lives on this earth, on the things that are going on in this lifetime, but we think that we can continue playing in it. I want to challenge you, don't be satisfied with only half believing, but if you have believed, don't be satisfied with just a half healing. I want God to deliver me from the power of sin. I get sick of dealing with sin. I get sick of constantly having to fight my flesh and to fight all these things, but I don't want to stop fighting it because I don't want it to have reign in my life. I'm looking forward to the day that I'll be delivered from its presence, but I want God to deliver me from its power, and he will do that if we will allow him to. Don't be satisfied with a half healing, a half salvation. Now, if we look just beyond this blind man, remember I said this is tying everything all together, right? If we look past this blind man here, Jesus is walking with his disciples. He's continuing on their journey. They're going up to uh, Caesarea Philippi. In verse 27, Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? It's a big question, right? Remember, he's teaching his disciples. He's trying to draw out of them an understanding here. And so he's walking along and he says, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, Uh, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Now that's a big question. The first time he said, Who does other people say that I am? They said, Well, they know that you're not just some man. They know there's something to you. There's something more important about you. You're one of the prophets, you're Moses, something like this. And Jesus then brings it even closer home, and he says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with, Uh, a phrase that I think we've all heard, a a passage that we're all familiar with, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, is how it's said in Matthew. 
And Peter, or God, excuse me, Jesus says to Peter, Blessed art thou, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but the Father has revealed it to you, right? And so he says, ding, 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 you got the right answer. Whatever he asked him, who do you say that I am? And so he claimed him to be the Messiah. He claimed him to be the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the one that was sent from heaven. You are the one that we've been looking for. But if we continue in this passage, verse number 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake, uh, and he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And so this is interesting to me because Peter at one moment is speaking a profound truth. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, okay, with that foundation, you understand who I am. Let me show you how I'm going to go about establishing my kingdom. Let me show you what it's going to take for me to get that crown. He says, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise the third day. And Peter says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I don't like that. You can't do it. Not so, Lord. He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and says, get thee behind me, Satan. I wonder if in my life I've ever done anything in Jesus. Like, yeah, get, get thee behind me, Satan. Probably so. But as we look at this passage, we find that Peter has only come part way. Right? He only had a partial trust, a partial faith. He says, I'm okay with you being the Messiah, but I'm not okay with the journey you've chosen to get there. I'm happy with the destination, but I am not happy with the journey. And I think that's how many of us are as well. We like the idea of going to heaven. We like the idea that God is in control and that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost and that he's went to prepare a place for us and he's coming again to receive us unto himself. We are happy with the destination. But whenever we start experiencing the journey, whenever the Lord starts revealing the path that he has for us to travel, whenever he starts showing his will for our lives, that's when we have trouble trusting him, right? How is it we can trust him with eternity, but we can't trust him with today, tomorrow, or next week? How is it that we can trust him to have everything planned out and that whenever we close our eyes in death, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? How is it that whenever uh, Peter says, uh, uh, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain, he was, or that was Paul saying that, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He says, I've got something at the end of this life. My destination that God has prepared for me is great. I'm trusting in him to take me into the presence of God. I'm trusting him that there is a mansion awaiting for me. I'm trusting him that there are rewards. I'm trusting him for eternity, but we stress and we struggle and we suffer with anxiety, and we wring our hands, and we worry each and every day, and I say we, I'm including myself in this, why is it that we can trust in God for eternity, but we can't trust him to take care of us down here below? Why is it we trust him for heaven, but not for earth? Why is it that we think that he can take care of us then, but not now? Why is it that that's such a large struggle for us? 
And so Peter was desiring the crown without the cross. He was desiring the destination, but he didn't like the journey. And I find that a lot of times we're settling for a halfway faith. We're settling for a partial faith. God will take care of eternity, but I've got to figure out how to put together this life down here. God will take care of heaven, but how do I make this work? We make this work by looking to Christ, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Whenever it says that he is the author and finisher, the finish is the destination. The author is the journey to get there. He is writing out the story. He is able to make all things work together for our good if we will allow him to, if we'll put our faith and trust in him, not just for eternity, not just for salvation, but for our day-to-day life. See, I don't want to just know about Jesus. I want to know him as my Savior. I don't want to just have a partial healing. I don't want to just be delivered from sin's penalty. I want to be delivered from the power down here on the earth. I don't want to continue living in sin and struggling in sin and staying in the pig pen. I don't want a partial faith. I don't want to just trust in him for heaven and not trust in him for my life down here below. I want to be able to trust him day by day that he can take care of me. He can take care of my family. He can take care of my friends, my church family, and the ministry and all these different things that he has me in the palm of his hand. He can take care of me if I will put my trust in him, not just for heaven, but for here. Then if we look at the end of this, verse number 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? In this passage, he's not teaching them that they're going to have to be martyred for the faith or that they're going to have to put great works and great effort and pay a huge price in order to be saved. He says, if you would follow me, if you would be my disciple, if you want to claim that you are with me, if you are serving me, then you're going to have to go the way that I am going. You're going to have to follow the journey that I am following. Because here's what most of us want is, as I said before, we want we want the crown without the cross, right? We're wanting the blessings without all of the other things that go along with it. Peter and the rest of the disciples, they were looking to Jesus to come and fix all of their problems, for him to come and sit on a throne, for him to be a Messiah, for him to drive out the Romans, for him to set up a kingdom, and the Jews were going to rule and reign from Jerusalem over all of the earth. That's what they were looking for. And Jesus kind of tipped over their apple cart and said, that's not the journey I'm taking. And if you are going to follow me, then it's going to take you following the same journey that I'm following. He says, I don't want you to just have a partial life. I don't want you to just halfway live. Okay? And I believe this is where most of us as Christians get stuck. What he is saying in this passage is if you want a life that's going to last, then you're going to have to live in light of eternity. If you're going to want eternal riches, then you have to live eternally now. What he is saying here, if you save your life, 
you will lose it. That means that I'm going to take and put all of my energies into what I can do in this world, how I can prosper in this life, building up riches, getting possessions, making success in this world. The moment you close your eyes in death, it's gone. It's lost. But he tells us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moss and rust doth not corrupt and thieves cannot break through and steal. He says that we can be sending our treasures before us. He tells us in another passage that there, all of our works are going to be tried by fire to see what manner they be. He said gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And what he is saying in that is after we are serving Christ, he is not a debtor to any man. He will repay us for the works that we do for his name. Okay? And so one of these days, we're going to have our entire life brought out and judged, not for punishment, but for reward. Okay? And so all of the things that we have done for self, all the things that we have done for this current life, all of the energy, all of the efforts that we have put into uh, pursuing our own interests and our own goals, those are going to go away in a moment. They're going to be burned up. Those are wood, hay, and stubble. But all of the things that we have done for Christ, all things that we have done for eternal significance, all of the things that we have done for his honor and for his glory will abide forever. And so what he's telling Peter, he says, you are so focused on this life below. You are so focused on getting what you want out of this life of advancing, of building a kingdom, of acquiring wealth, of making everything fall into place down here below. You're putting all of your effort into what Jesus says is but a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. He says, if you're going to follow after me, take up your cross and follow after me. Live for me. Follow my pattern. Follow the way that I've set out before you. Allow me to direct your steps. Allow for me to guide you and set before yourself the things that are important and eternal and lasting. And he says, if you lose your life in me, you'll find it. I don't want to live a partial life. I don't want to go through this life and completely ignore eternity before me. And the culture which we live in preaches this so much that you have to climb the ladder, that you have to live for the day, you have to try to uh, be successful according to man's standards. Mm -hmm. And for us as Christians, we forget about God, we forget about things eternal, and we put so much effort, so much attention into the here and the now that we forget about the life everlasting. And we squander what God has given us to sow the seed now to reap the benefits then. We squander that away and we settle for halfway. And so my challenge for each and every one of us today is consider these different thoughts that we've brought out today. Consider these different uh, pitfalls, if you will, for these people who were satisfied or settling for halfway. Do any of these apply to you? Have any of you been settling for halfway? Maybe there's someone here today who is only halfway believed. You say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Do you believe in him as your savior? Are you trusting in him 
to save your soul? Are you trusting that his finished work on the cross is sufficient? That when you close your eyes in death, that you are going to be with him? If not, put your faith and trust in him today. He says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call out to him, trusting him as your savior. He will secure that. He will forgive you and heaven will be your home. Maybe you're here today and you've been settling for a half healing. You've had sin's penalty taken away, but its presence is very much with you day by day and you've been playing around in sin. You've been allowing things in. You've been making excuses for sin. Don't be satisfied with a partial healing. Take those things to God. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and settle for a partial healing. Don't settle for a partial faith, trusting in him for eternity and not trusting in him for today. If you're anxious, if you're fretting, if you're fearing, you need to take those things to God. You need to put your trust in him. He's able to take care of you not just then. He's able to take care of you now. And the last thing that we looked at, don't settle for partial living. Live for things that abide forever. Don't put all of your time and attention in this world below because it's going to pass away in a moment. But you're going to live for eternity. And what you do now can abide with you then. If you see the things of eternal significance, of eternal value as being the most important. So my challenge for you today, don't settle for halfway. Don't settle for partial. God is willing, God is able to do so much more in your life if you are willing to allow him to. Don't settle for partway. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings, Lord. We thank you for this passage that we have before us, Lord. I'm glad that this man didn't settle for partway, that he was fully healed. But Lord, I know I'm guilty from time to time of settling for part way, of just giving you part of me, not all of me, of just trusting you uh, for some things and not of others, of wanting cleansed of some sin, but being content to allowing others to still abide in me. I just pray, Lord, to ask you just to help me, Lord, not to be satisfied with part way. I pray that you be with each person here, that you would deal with their hearts, you'd deal with their lives, draw them closer to you. If there is someone in here today who has never put their faith and trust in you for salvation, I pray that even right now that they would call out to you and that they would ask you to forgive their sins and to save their soul, that they would go all the way in believing and trusting you to save them. Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. I ask you, Lord, that you would be with our time and fellowship. Lord, I just pray your blessings on it and be with us as we part and go out into our uh, different places throughout this week. I pray that you'd watch over us, Lord. We thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen.